Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Let me start by saying I know this is not about me in any way, shape, or form. I know that the depth and duration of the pain and suffering among Black people in this country is something I can't nor will I ever fully understand because I can't understand something that I do not live through daily because our job is not to tell other people how to feel about or respond to their own experience. But my job is to talk to you. And I don't know how to do this the right way or I, 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 what I've learned over the past week, what a lot of us have learned that's so pathetic, but true is that it's better to speak imperfectly than to sit in silence for self-preservation's sake. And I go back and forth with how I need to do this. And, you know, it's, I don't want to appear like I'm trying to be some sort of white savior, give a cheesy motivational speech. I'd rather give the podium to a woman of color that can actually speak to this from the depths of their own experience. But when I sat here and thought about it, it's typically me every week. And it's typically me that's fallen short of what I should have been doing. And it's my thoughts and feelings and actions toward anti-racism that I've neglected to share that I want to share with you now. And that I will continue to share with you going forward. This episode to me is less reactionary of like, Here's what to read. Here's here are the resources. Here are the people to follow. Here's the podcast to listen to. All of that I fully support and I will have in the episode notes. And I think that's such an important piece of this. I've been sharing these on Instagram. There's a highlight on my profile that says BLM. And I will continue to share these because listening to thought leaders always and especially the past week, like you know, Austin Channing Brown, like Rachel Cargill, Rachel Ricketts, Brittany Cunningham, these women have been doing the work their whole lives for so long and publicly in recent years been these incredible activists that have made incredible resources and have communicated with us in so many different ways in terms of how to be better allies. They've been doing the work. They've done the work. But I also need to do the work. And I don't want to get out of holding myself accountable. And I don't want to forego telling you all of the things I always should have been in favor of pointing you in somebody else's direction and not take accountability myself and not apologize myself and not tell you how I've always felt about this and operated in my heart and mind that I never fully articulated in favor of my own personal comfort. I'm not an expert. I can't sit here and tell you all of the ins and outs and intricacies of the issue of systemic racism in America. But I can tell you the education I have done, what I have learned for years and years and the conversations I do have and how I feel about the events that have gone on because a big piece of this is white people getting more comfortable talking about race, is white people talking to white people, is white people not always pointing friends and family and colleagues and followers and listeners to women of color to teach them the lessons that they should have been learning all along. I say women because this podcast reaches 98% women, but I, I just think it's important to not put the cart before the horse in a sense of let's not act like we can change everything right this second because we have a lot of work, education, listening, talking to do. But I also want to be an example of a person who's like, let's just talk about it now. Let's just get started. 
even if it's not perfect. I want to open up the dialogue because I want this to be sustainable and I'm in it for the long haul. And I'm very, very nervous to talk through this. And I don't even think that I should be because it's a quality app. Like, how complicated is this at the end of the day? But I can still try and figure out how to keep my house plant alive after I've planted the seed. We can still start planting the seeds. Those of us whose hearts and minds are in the right place can start somewhere and do the reading and the listening and the paying attention and the elevating of voices in the meantime. In the coming weeks, I am going to record an episode that's going to talk about influence in the time of social justice, that's going to try to tackle some of these topics. And I want to have a conversation between myself and a peer in the industry. Her name is Jessie Bernhardt. She's a black woman that lives in Chicago. She is a person I respect tremendously, and she is a depth of experience in the marketing, advertising, and influencer space. And I not only want to give her the floor because it's not up to me to tell me how people influence and the implications that I feel as a white woman in during times of social unrest, but also she's generous enough to give us her time and her perspective. To ha- It's a time for me and all of you to, out there to listen to about what we can do going forward, how we can turn all of this into meaningful action to actually get at the root cause and to not just band-aid the symptoms and to post on Instagram and then leave it at that. That's what I don't want. I want to work towards sustainable changes, honest conversations, towards elevating Black voices among my peers in the industry. And I want for this episode just to tell you my thoughts on some of the different areas where this intersects in terms of humanity and equality and morality and social justice, in terms of police brutality, in terms of the way I view white privilege and the way I try to tackle these conversations with people, albeit not perfectly. Um, and I just, it would be one thing if I had done a lot of this thinking just this weekend. I've thought about all these issues for a long time and I don't know it all and I have to do better, but I would be lying if I said I didn't have a lot of hard and fast stances and a lot of deep-seated convictions and beliefs as it relates to race and as it relates to equality and human rights and the way people are treated in this country by the people that are supposed to protect us. I've just neglected to share them. So through this episode, I want to explore that, share what I should have told you a long time ago, tell you what I need to do better going forward, and hopefully just be a first step in people like me that were afraid to use their voice before because they were nervous to offend to just stop caring about that because it's not about me and who gives a shit if this crumbles because I'm speaking about what is right. And when I think about it, I'm like, it's insane to even have that instinct because if I get canceled over, over fighting against racism, over wanting people to open their minds, over wanting people to think more deeply about these issues and how we become more actively anti-racist, if talking about that gets you canceled, that is perhaps the least thing that's wrong in the world. That, that, that is the least of my concerns. I know so many of you are so wonderful and have an open heart and mind. And I know that a lot of us have realized our actions were not speaking as loud as our words. Our words were a mere inside voice and our actions were inaudible. And that's not okay. But this situation in particular, the past week, the death of George, George Floyd, the behavior of Amy Cooper, Thinking back on Ahmaud Arbery and on Breonna Taylor, on all of the innocent lives that have been lost at the hands of 
police brutality or blatant racism in 2020 in the United States of America, the past week has severed any and all connection between my emotions and my ability to verbalize them. And I almost, I mean, I think it was because I just needed to not talk for once. I needed to listen. And I think what I'm most appalled by of all is what I finally heard that nobody should have ever had to tell me is just because I don't consider myself to be racist, just because I'm not hateful. It sure as hell does not mean I've been helpful. I, I'm I'm not stupid. I'm a person who prides myself on knowing a lot. And I think of these moments happen when I realize such a jarring blind spot. When I, when I, when I realize I know nothing, that I've completely missed the mark, I absolutely freeze. I've had trouble reconciling my indispensability to the solution of making our world less racist, paired with my ignorance about my contribution to the problem of the world being racist. And it sends me into a tailspin of uncertainty and rage and sadness and guilt and fear and regret. And no, again, this is not about me or how I feel. And it's so pathetic that it ever had to come to this for me to even really begin to reflect and tell you this but I want to be honest with you and I do not know how to not make this sound like some bullshit virtuous optical white guilt other than to say that I hope at this point that you know me well or feel like you do and I hope you know how much I genuinely sincerely unequivocally care about people about equality about marginalized voices I fundamentally can't understand why somebody would be hateful toward a person because of the color of their skin and the naivete of assuming that that does not exist because it doesn't exist within my own brain. Therein lies the issue. The, uh, the sadness and anger and despair and pain and confusion and disbelief I feel toward George Floyd's death is important for me to communicate to you and part of what I need to apologize for because anytime this inexplicably, inexcusably, unbelievably happens, my shock is part of my privilege for one. And two, I always care. It always upsets me. I never tell you that. Why? But I felt this way toward... Ahmaud Arbery, toward Breonna Taylor, toward Trayvon Martin, Akai Gurley, Tanisha Anderson, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Atiana Jefferson, Sandra Bland, Oscar Grant, Orlando Castile, Stephen Clark, Alton Sterling, Ayanna Jones, Tamir Rice, Sean Reed, Amber Monroe. Natasha McKenna, Laquan McDonald, John Crawford, Tony McDade, Terrence Crutcher, Samuel DeBose, Edward Keith Scott, Jonathan Varell, Jordan Edwards, Corey Jones, Walter Scott, Dante Parker, Yvette Smith. I wish I could say that I couldn't keep going. Did I say Sandra Bland? Because I'll get fu- that. That one fires me up more than any. Remind me to talk about that later. I care about all of these. I genuinely do. How can you be a daughter or son or friend or mother or father or grandparent or anything to anyone and not feel deep, deep despair? There's no rhyme or reason to the names or order that I just read off, but 
the, my point is, there's so many names you think of. I care about all of these, and all of these are atrocious and heinous and unconscionable, unjust acts of racism that ended lives too early that never, ever, ever should have happened, especially not those who were by the hand of the people that the, uh, we, the taxpayers, pay to protect us, pay to uphold the law of the United States of America, which claims that we are all to be treated equal. For me to not communicate the way I feel about these horrendous crimes, to not say their names aloud more to bring attention to the root cause and my rage toward the system of police brutality, <sighs> I'm, I'm horrified to have deemed these out of my lane, irrelevant to podcast topics. I'm horrified because relevance doesn't apply here. I don't have to tell you why we should be outraged, appalled, and unanimously sprung into action by the death of George Floyd. And as with any situation where there are highly publicized victims, I hate that this is what his name is associated with. Because these people are all people, and that's the point. George Floyd was a 46-year-old man. He was known to his friends as Big Floyd. He was the father of a six-year-old daughter named Gianna. And if you haven't watched her at the protest in Houston on Tuesday... Drop everything and watch. He was a talented athlete in school. He played basketball and football. He was having trouble finding work in Houston. He moved to Minneapolis to start over and he worked two jobs. His friends called him the gentle giant. That same man was an unarmed black man who was killed by a white cop who kneeled on his neck for more than eight minutes in broad daylight while three officers watched and stood idly by for trying to pay with a bad $20 bill. And you can keep any and all thoughts about he should have not committed a crime in the first place or the way he reacted or you, any way you are trying to justify the actions that occurred of the police officer or the behavior of George Floyd to warrant anything related to what would appear to be a morsel of an excuse for why this would have happened. First of all, please stop listening and associating yourself with anything I'm doing because I cannot understand the inhumanity of a person who knows what happened, who saw that video, and would even dare to explore any sort of causation that would justify it. Every officer who's spoken out about this has said under no circumstances does that warrant a dangerous technique like that. And not only does any officer who abuses their power in that way deserve to be held accountable, but as does anybody is who stands by and allows it to happen because he wasn't actively resisting. He said he couldn't breathe. It is the job of the police officers to only employ equal but not exceed the physical resistance offered by a suspect one. That's the only time use of force techniques come into play. And even the purpose oftentimes of having multiple officers present is so those with less of a temper, those that are less directly infiltrated in the situation can help defuse the situation and ma manage and monitor and have a, a checks and balances system for excessive force. And they just stood there. The people that we, the taxpayers, pay to protect us and the people that uphold the standards of the law against us should have to uphold the utmost standards for their conduct. These should be the cream of the crop. These should be the pillars of respect, of understanding, and of fair treatment. And I'm so tired of hearing like, Every industry has bad apples, just a bad seed, just one of the bad ones. No. To quote a stand-up set Chris Rock did, some industries, you just can't be bad at your job. 
like, I don't know, pilots, surgeons. There are some industries that need the best of the best. And if anything, that is even in question of their intentions, of their fair treatment, of their ability to uphold the law that they so harshly hold other people to, they need to be out. Looking at the officer's name, whose name I don't even want to say, is he was put on leave in 2011 for an inappropriate police shooting of an Alaska Native American man. He shot a black, unarmed 21-year-old man in 2008. He was one of the officers who murdered a Latino man with 16 bullets forced into him and a total of 42 rounds shot off. He and another officer were chasing a car in 2005, causing the death of three people. There are 12 police brutality complaints against this man in the Minneapolis Office of Police Conduct Complaint Database. They're all listed as closed, non-public, and no discipline. I'm not saying this now because I'm late to the game. I'm not saying this now because I am scrambling because I realized I didn't say enough. I'm saying this now because what's happening now is that everybody's paying attention to other things. Unconscionable neglect of the Minneapolis Police Department to allow this man to wear a badge. To not have yet held the other three officers fully accountable. And I think I just, I want to say I'm sorry for deeming these Stories to be out of scope, of uh, of not being relevant to the things I I usually talk about, because if if you're a human being independent of topic or expertise or race or conversational comfort level, this is relevant to you. And all the people I mentioned before were too. And where I went wrong is deeming these conversations out of scope. I've told you about every other social cause I've, I, I care about. And I do care about this. And why did I leave these stories out? And if I'm being honest, sometimes like when overwhelming things happen in the world, I think is when I realize like I'm not cut out to be a leader. I don't have the right things to say. I can't put keep my head on straight. I can't. I, I need time to step back, to process, to mourn, to figure out what moving forward looks like. And I become terrified to communicate my sadness and anxiety because it's not about me. And I think like <clears throat> presence of this tension in my life pales in comparison to the centuries of suffering endured by people who were screaming at me as loud as they possibly could. But it went into the void because nobody felt tense enough, felt that racism was still enough of a problem nobody felt that it was their problem as if racism was black people's issue I'm pretty sure if it was up to black people it would have ended before it began so whose problem is it it's mine and no i'm not saying it's yours or it's ours or white people's and that may all be true but the way i think we all need to think about it is that the responsibility is mine i hope we're all saying that to ourselves i haven't prioritized the diversity of guests the way i should have not as quickly as I should have. I actually, I recognized this last year and I made that one of my goals for this year in terms of diversifying guests. And when I did the influencer episode and I told people that the people they nominated who were doing a good job, I would share. I looked at that list and was horrified at the lack of diversity. And I realized even then that I was, the, the issue is I wasn't diversifying the voices I was sharing enough. And that was also affecting my audience. And I should be the first person to encourage that. I should be the first person that's saying, above all else, diversify your feeds, hear from a variety of different perspectives, standpoints, skin colors, experiences. I seldom, you know, it's interesting because I, you, you'll hear me qualify my privilege often. I, 
I am aware of, of that. And I listen to that at, at every episode through that lens in terms of what am I saying or doing that's misleading somebody that isn't taking into account my own advantages. But I, I never looked at that through the lens of race. I never spelled that out explicitly through the lens of race. And I don't like a lot of things about myself, but I'm not stupid. And I know that. I pride myself on knowing things. I'm a deep diver. I prioritize ongoing education in my life, and I'm not going to play dumb, and I did not learn about systemic racism over the weekend. I didn't overhaul the way I frame these conversations just now. I've been unlearning and trying to rid my brain of the disease that is biased for years, and while it is formidable, it is curable, and it's something I've worked on forever, and it takes a lot of work. Have I ever communicated that? No. Have I ever brought you into the conversation? No. Why? Because I was scared. It wasn't appropriate. I was scared I was going to offend somebody. I was scared I was going to make somebody mad. I was scared it was out of turn. I was scared I was going to act like I was speaking on behalf of somebody else's experience, like as if I understood it. And now looking back on that, it's so self-serving and pathetic to prioritize one's own feelings, emotions, self-preservation above centuries and centuries of pain and hurt and suffering and not being heard. I think for a lot of people, at least that I've spoken to, I do think a big piece of this is like never taking a step back and like in reviewing your role in this and reviewing how you perceive racism and educating yourself on its roots being so much deeper than its symptoms. And I think that what I'm struggling with is like I knew better and I still didn't make it part of the conversation. Um that's my job as a person with the platform is like, I, I really know better. I really, really do. And I am so, so sorry to have neglected my responsibility as a leader and a speaker on a large platform to not only share my own thoughts on conversations surrounding racism, but also for not deliberately and actively elevating and sharing black voices with my audience for not highlighting these stories of these incredible people that had so much life ahead of them because life ended for a reason that because it doesn't exist in my own head I overlooked its existence in the real world in my role in being an active ally and combating it and not just being not racist but anti-racist these are the things I've learned this past week that I'm just like I don't know I I am so so grateful to especially the women of color I've always followed, so new ones I've followed, to the various resources put together for white people who should have been seeking these out on our own the whole time. I'm eternally grateful for even having the emotional capacity to handhold right now when it's the last thing we deserve. And a big reason I even want to talk about this right now is because I do think part of this responsibility is white people talking to other white people. Even if you don't want to say say or do the wrong thing, I think we have to have these conversations amongst ourselves so we don't put the burden on people who have been literally screaming in our faces for this to happen for years that we actively chose not to listen to. Another piece of this that I think is difficult within ourselves and across the country I was reading, I'm actually going to read from an article so I don't mince words, but this was helpful for me in terms of, you guys always hear me talk about how I, I, my brain doesn't operate in extremes. 
I don't see everything as as mutually exclusive. I feel a lot of different ways at once, even though a lot of the ideologies behind them sometimes overlap and sometimes directly conflict. I think part of the outrage so many of us feel toward each other, which is like the last thing I want everyone to feel right now. I want... I, I just want us to like if the root the root of this is that a man was unfairly killed for the color of his skin and as humans, if you have any humanity in you, you recognize that is wrong. And that is a something we should all agree about. No questions asked. And everything that's happened afterward, I try to keep in mind what actually happened because it's making the conversation so murky as it got with COVID nineteen as well. I I think I feel confusion in my grievance all at once of the murder of George Floyd, of racism overall, systemic racism in general, and the fact that we're still having these things happen, having to have these conversations, period. I'm grieving for the small businesses that are destroyed, especially for the Black, indigenous people of color owned businesses that I say we're all grieving, but the intensity of a person who can imagine themselves in George Floyd's shoes in a way that I cannot, the simultaneous mourning of their livelihood and of another man's life due to racism. I fully understand what Martin Luther King said in terms of a riot being the language of the unheard. But I also am terrified of what's happened to my community. I live in the city of Chicago. My anxiety's through the roof. It's, I, I care about all of it. I am grieving all of it. And this short-term term period of anxiety and confusion and fear, read anything about the experience of being Black in America. Ask any Black friend. This is... This is the consistent tension, anxiety, fear that is felt. This is the physical manifestation of that anger. Peaceful, the, the, the attempt at peaceful protesting has been had many a time. And I get that too. And for all, all I want, all I hope for, for is, is that if this is the language of the unheard, we are listening. We are once and for all, for the love of God, listening. I want to read you something from an article that Hitha Palipu posted in her five smart reads. It kind of has a weird headline, but I liked some of the sentiment. It's, it's called The Center is Not Holding by uh, David French. Keep in mind, he is a white man. But he articulated something that I was struggling to, and I think I respect Hitha so and tremendously, if she thought this was worth reading, I think it's worth you hearing as well. He was talking about a poem called The Second Coming by Yeats, and the sentiment of it being when the center fails, a culture starts to crumble. And not the politically moderate center, but the center of moral and cultural gravity. And he says... In the United States, the center is swallowed by the partisan heart and the partisan mind. It's blasted apart by outrage and clickbait. To take the most recent example, from the moment the first window broke in Minneapolis, you could see the American unity fail. 
Some people supported the riots outright. Most did not. A tiny few people defended the police officer who allegedly murdered George Floyd. The vast majority did not. But we divided still. And we divided on what we despised the most. We divided on what we said quietly and what we said loudly. Think of our arguments as lowercase and uppercase. On the left, lowercase, of course, rioting is wrong. Uppercase, but police brutality is the crisis. On the right, of course, Floyd's death was wrong, lowercase, but rioting is tyranny, uppercase. We see the same kind of dynamic regarding the pandemic. On the left, of course, we need to consider economic pain, lowercase, but human lives are at stake, uppercase. On the right, of course, we need to care for the vulnerable, lowercase, but the economy is collapsing, up, uppercase. In many ways, this is the most insidious form of partisanship. It breeds constant moral indignation. How dare you say that I don't care? I do care, but the real issue is dot, dot, dot. The partisan is indignant at the claim of indifference and then indignant again at the allegedly misplaced outrage of the other side. Who is left to balance the competing claims? Who is left to truly, actually care about all the relevant injustice and pain? Who is left to hold the center? And I think when I'm talking and debating with friends and trying to explain my stance on things, that's where I'm speaking from, is the moral center. I have political views aplenty. And though your concept of morality and politics inevitably intersect, to me, the importance of my morals transcend what is political. And that is why I make a case for humanity, for equality, for loving one another, for holding those accountable to uphold the standards of those who should be allowed to wear the badge. This is why I, f I worry for businesses whose livelihood is affected. This is why I worry for those who are so angry in the streets and who feel so desperately unheard that the physical manifestation is the only means to get us to listen. I am furious. I'm morally appalled, repulsed that anybody would take advantage of this situation for their own personal gain, but I'm not naive enough to think that that doesn't happen. I think that these symptoms all intersect with different interests politically that overcomplicate and murky the waters of what should be so, so crystal clear to us, which is not the symptoms, but the root cause of racism in America. And the focus above all else needs to be on our own hearts, minds, families, communities, on hard conversations, on sharing and lifting black voices, on our own ongoing education, and on our own fight for marginalized voices that may not be able to be heard. If you have a seat at the table, don't focus on speaking for those who are not at the table, pull up a fucking seat, sit somebody down at the table who deserves just as much to be there as you do, and you stop talking for once and just listen. These are the things I know, and these are the things I neglected to put at the forefront of my responsibility as a person with a platform and what I promise to be better about going forward. I want to give you some sweeping schedule or set of bullets about all of these things I'll do and say and when and how. but. This isn't, uh, this isn't a bullet journal. <laughs> this isn't a, like, a cute plan of action that I'm going to write down and, like, check off the boxes. This isn't, I take this way too seriously to pretend that I, right now, a handful of days as I've 
after I've, I've even begun to process a lot of this, that I know exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. That would be wrong. That would be me blowing smoke. That would be me just trying to sound like I have it together and like I have all these steps and therefore you should eradicate any judgment you have toward me for not doing this sooner because I'm going to be better. I'm going to do better. For me, doing better is talking frankly like this, being less scared to talk about race, being less scared to stand up for what I believe in morally, even if it intersects politically. I don't want to alienate anybody, but I also don't support anybody who supports anything adjacent to racism. I I want to be realistic and I want other people to take this seriously. And this is a long haul. I'm here for the long haul. To take this seriously, we have to take it upon ourselves to not just do or say things one time, to not donate one time, to not make an Instagram post, but to actually do serious work in your heart, in your mind, and with those around you to dismantle the biases that are very real, but we're too scared to face because we don't want, we, we don't want to consider ourselves racist. We don't want to think there's a hateful bone in our body. I don't have one. I really don't. But to say that I grew up in the South and to go to a, a high school where they called the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression, you don't think I've got some deep-seated planted biases in there that I have to excavate daily? It's okay to admit that we don't know it all. It's okay to not have it figured out. What's not okay is to not do anything about it. What's not okay is to consider it not your problem. I was reading an article in Time. I believe... The person's name who wrote it is Savala Trepinsky, who said, I tell my students a white person rushing to do racial justice work without first understanding the impacts, uses and deceptions of their own whiteness is like an untrained person rushing into the ER to help nurses and doctors. Therein probably lies more harm than good. And this is what I mean by. This is not. So, a switch I'm gonna flip and everything's different this is not something that's that that I want to portray as being what leads to no sustainable change which is a quick fix which is a band-aid a band-aid that is quote-unquote flesh or nude colored which is probably one of the first times a black or brown child realizes that the world's default setting is inconvenient for him or her and these are the small things where I get frustrated when people deny the existence of white privilege as if it's personal, as if it's accusatory, if it doesn't suggest you did anything wrong. This is what I mean with the moral center. Stop thinking of the term politically. Take a step back. All it means is that there was a built-in advantage because your skin color does not make things harder. It does not mean you didn't work hard. It does not take away from anything you've accomplished. It does not mean you didn't deserve and you don't earn. You didn't earn exactly where you are. It does not take anything from you. It does not have to compromise who you are. It's, it's not political. It's not controversial. Its own connotation is its own worst enemy and it's been made into something it's not. And all, it, all people mean is that your life was not harder because of your skin color. Because somebody like me Growing up, every doll looked like me. Barbie was blonde hair and blue-eyed. Everyone on the media looked like me. Everywhere I went, people looked like me. 
every anytime I had to draw a family portrait, I had a crayon that was my skin color. Band-aids were my skin color. Anything called nude or flesh or whatever was my skin color. I was the default setting. I had no inconveniences. I had nobody treat me differently because of my skin color. Going through life, I I don't have to be nervous if I want to go for a jog and threaten that I'll get killed because I something about me looks suspicious. I don't have to worry about putting my hood up. I don't, the fact that I do not have to put thought into being white, the fact that I neglected to talk about being white on this podcast because I so don't think about it because I don't identify with it because I am not reminded every moment of every day from society that I am my race. Sometimes when you're so far immersed in something, you forget the shoreline even ever existed. I forget that me being white is a thing that I need to take into account sometimes. And anytime I get in this debate with somebody, all I want them to just consider for a second is that just maybe living your life unconsciously, being able to simply exist is a privilege. And unless you can prove to me that you chose your parents, you chose the life you were born into, that you somehow in the cosmos from birth chose who you wanted to be and chose the color of your skin and chose the circumstances in which you grew up before you had money and time and resources and the ability, the cognitive ability to even be doing anything that wasn't your existing built-in environment. If you can prove to me that you did that, maybe you have a case for not believing that privilege exists. But you can't look me in the eye and tell me that you believe in upholding the United States Constitution. You believe that all men are created equal by law and tell me that some people deserve more than others because of what they were born into. That just because you're white and somebody else is black is what it is. This is supposed to be a land of opportunity. And some of the biggest patriots and upholders of the Constitution and people that are that are so American quintessentially are some of the biggest deniers of what things like Black Lives Matter or what white privilege really means. And it has nothing to do with excluding white people, with suggesting you don't deserve what you have. It's actually suggesting that after birth, you indeed have full control over everything you have and are. But what you can't control from birth is your skin color. And if there are equities based on things that we cannot control, you have to offset those inequities to achieve equality. By focusing on inequities, you are not prioritizing one race over the other. You are not excluding one race as being less important than the other. When there are inequities and there is a disenfranchised group, the focus on them is the only way to offset a built-in disadvantage. And acknowledging our built-in advantage does not take away anything. We still say it's the same place. And if you're threatened by Black people being treated as equally as you are, being given the same opportunities that you were afforded from birth, I can't help you. But again, it's not about you. That's the biggest thing of all, is the analogy I've heard so many people use is like, if I'm a lifeguard and I jump in the pool to save the person that's drowning, Are you going to complain about all the people I didn't save that weren't? If there's a house on fire and the fire department comes to extinguish it, is their next door neighbor going to say, well, what about my house? This is to correct a problem. This is to counteract unfair treatment. White privilege is not a concept made out of thin air. Black Lives Matter is not a movement made out of thin air. Neither of these things threaten, exclude, or take away anything from white people whatsoever. 
they simply direct the focus toward black people who are being murdered by the people who us, the taxpayers, pay to protect us, the people who are supposed to be created equal underneath the law, regardless of skin color. And if skin color is not something you choose, and if being a black person is not something you've experienced, it is not up to you to say these things do or don't exist or are or aren't valid or someone's experience is or isn't legit. It, it incenses me. It's so self-serving. It's so self-centered. It's so, it's, it's so extremely narrow-minded. And I just feel like all any of us ever want, even the people who I'm attacking now, who, who deny white privilege, who say things like all, all lives matter, I imagine you feel pretty defensive. I bet all you want from me is the benefit of the doubt. I bet that's all you want is, is for me to not assume you're some racist, horrible person and to think that you have good reason for believing things the way they, that you do. And if that's the case, okay. But all I need you to do is to grant that to other people. All I need you to do is imagine walking your entire life never being given the benefit of the doubt. The more people can admit that they don't know it all, I don't care where you're from or how old you are, how much you know of what you, you've experienced anecdotally or otherwise. All the world needs is people with a moral center, with open minds, and who don't let hyper-politicized bipartisan issues overtake what we know to be right and what we know to be ethical and what we know to be true, which is that we all are supposed to be created equal. And anything that takes from that, we need to give our time to, to give our money to, to give our education to, to focus our attention on. And it is not threatening you in any way. And I understand that things like the looting and the violence take from that and distract from that. Trust me, I get that. This is quite terrifying to be in the middle of. I never wanted to get to that point ever again. I don't think anybody doing it wanted to get to that point ever again. And all we need to do right now is listen. And I know I just did a lot of talking and I'm sure I just... I. I don't even, can't even tell you how many ways in which I messed that up. Even using pronouns, making us seem different from them, like that's wrong. These are the things I need to improve. And these are the things I'm not going to pretend that I'm perfect at now. But I, at the very least, anybody who listens to this, anybody who, who even ever entertains anything I have to say, who respects me even in the slightest, I just ask you to consider. I don't need to overhaul your heart and mind right this second, but I'm just asking you to consider that none of us are better than the other. And if you think that's not true, if you think you are for some reason better than somebody else, just because of the skin color you were born into, the situation you were born into that you did not choose, might I suggest you hit up the dark web, find a time machine and go back to the feudal system or the caste system or go to another country where people don't have basic rights. Because we're supposed to be one with basic rights. And if you're denying that we should be actively doing everything in our power to give them to people, to seek justice for those who are denied them, you're out of your mind. I'm sorry, you're out of your mind. And I know a lot of you know this, but as I always say, Sometimes the, the, the rants I go on, the advice I give, I know it's not what everyone needs to hear, but if somebody needs to hear it, it's worth saying. And I'm sorry that I didn't make my belief in terms of the way I talk about race, in terms of how I talk about equality, in terms of how I denounce and, and think constantly about the threat and problem and systemic overhaul that needs to happen in order to prevent atrocities like police brutality. I'm sorry I, if I didn't communicate where my heart and mind stand. And by doing that, I did not educate my followers, my listeners, my platform on how 
to frame these issues and maybe to change their hearts and minds. Before now, I was not doing my part in being an active ally and being actively anti-racist. And I hate that it took this long for me to snap out of it. I'm committed to the long haul. I'm committed to sustainable change. And my lack of action items now is not to speak unseriously to this, but rather that I take this so seriously that it is so not in vain and it is not to be performative and it is not to tie this up with a little bow and for you to walk away from this episode and be like, there it is, she did it. No, I'm here to tell you I was wrong and I'm here to tell you how I feel because I should have done it a long time ago and I want people to know how I feel, especially while these issues are relevant. I'm here to ask you to consider the moral center above the political agenda and I'm here to tell you I'm sorry for doing you a disservice and not sharing all of this way earlier. But going forward, above all else, I promise not to return to the thing that I'm so scared of, which is normal. We all are feeling so much tension right now, and I think we want it to return to normal. But I think the important thing to remember is that the the absence of this tension does not exist if, if we go back to normal. The tension is a result of what we deem to be normal. And... Amidst all the unrest and uncertainty and anxiety a lot of us feel, even though it's not about us, start having these conversations, start prying, start asking. I, I know a lot of people that don't agree with me on a lot of things, and it's really frustrating, and it's uncomfortable, and I don't really know what it looks like going forward. But what I do know is that anybody who loves you and respects you knows that you deserve the right to explore and to reach your own conclusions and to make your own choices. And that just as anybody who, who's allowed to have their own opinion that's an amalgam of their own life experience, their beliefs, their anecdotes, their background, so are you. And even if you don't agree on that, nobody can discount you or disown you for disagreeing. You are entitled to your own journey. You are entitled to your own beliefs. You are entitled to follow your compass. And I suggest you do that independent of what other people around you think and believe. You, you things are these things are only convictions if we ourselves feel them so deeply if we've come to believe them through a variety of input sources sure but you yourself first and foremost have to believe it so wholeheartedly and when other people aren't willing to accept that you think something differently than them when other people aren't willing to accept that you want to have conversations to open up the dialogue you first and foremost need to be open as well even if you think that they're wrong it's the only way to have any sort of civil discourse. I don't want to accuse anybody of being a horrible person or a racist. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume they have some good reason for believing what they do. And even if I walk from the away from the conversation not thinking they do, at least you planted a seed. Maybe there's a small lens that the other person will look at things through the next time. And maybe you'll walk away having a better idea of how you can approach people in these conversations to actually make meaningful change and to not cut it off before it even gets started. These things are so uncomfortable, but our discomfort is nothing in comparison to the discomfort of so many of our Black brothers and sisters who have had to live their entire lives in discomfort because we're not willing to speak up because we prioritize our own personal comfort over their equality. And that's what's not okay. So speak up, plant seeds, get uncomfortable, cry, scream, whatever the hell has to happen. I'm doing it too in my life. And above anything I could tell you I'm doing or show you I'm doing on Instagram or donation I could screenshot, what I care about is us having these conversations and us working on hearts and minds and communities and families. And sometimes these are best handled one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes these don't need to involve a lot of people. Sometimes people don't need to know these things are happening. I think that we don't have to have huge drag out fights with the whole family involved. I just think that there are small ways to open doors 
with personal relationships we have with people who know and trust and love us and are already giving us the benefit of the doubt and that if we're sharing this, if we're willing to go there, if we're willing to get uncomfortable, it must actually mean something to us. And that's where I'm trying to come from. And I just, I don't know. I feel like as long as we are fighting for the moral center, as long as we are fighting for lives and not stereotyping and not projecting things that we should feel about certain people based on other people's actions and not assuming other human beings don't deserve a clean slate. As long as we are operating from the ethical place of this country being based upon opportunity and equality, you are on the right side of history. And that is my opinion. I fully expect to get a lot of emails about all the things I said and did wrong, and I will read them and I will listen to them and I will implement them going forward. And I am sorry if I, for anything I said that upset you, And I am open to that feedback, and I hope that you will be open to my opinion as well. And I hope you understand that above all else, my biggest change that I'm trying to communicate here is that I am very uncomfortable with this entire episode. I'm not even, I I probably won't even go back and review it because I'll nitpick and I'm nitpicking out of fear. I'm nitpicking out of not being liked. I'm nitpicking out of the fear of my own following, being hurt, my own business being hurt. Uh, But that's not the point. That never was supposed to be the point. It can't be the point going forward. So please know my intentions are pure. Please know that I believe and see the best in people. And please know that I don't care if you're on your deathbed. It is never too late to change your mind. There's a lot to be angry about right now. And justifiably so. And you're allowed to be angry about more than one of them. And it's okay if their ideologies somewhat overlap. Because this is a complicated system to deconstruct, and if we expect it to be easy and straightforward, then we are so, so misled, and this is going to be an even longer road. But these confusing and upsetting things will not go away unless we fix the only thing that caused them. The one thing that should be incontrovertibly true in all of our hearts and minds, which is that we are all equal. And until Black Lives Matter, all lives can't matter. I apologize for getting emotional. This is this was a a release of a lot of things, and I just don't know. But I love you. Thank you. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.